If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. This week, Catherine Haymans unravels the mysteries of the multiverse. I'm told that uh, I was only six years old when I asked my primary school teacher what the most challenging job in the world was. And, uh, and she went, oh, which I'm sure most primary teachers would say, and they went, oh, um, brain surgeon or um, astrophysicist. Uh, so it took me until about the age of 18 to decide which of those two paths I would, I would take. And I set off to university in Edinburgh uh, to take an astrophysics degree. And it came to the end of my degree, and, uh, and I said to the, uh, the professor, so, what's the most challenging job in astrophysics? And, and he looked at me rather strangely, and he said, um, I don't know, um, maybe uh, you should work out why the expansion of our universe is accelerating. Now, I'm sure you've all had life-changing moments at some point in your life, and, and this was one of mine. Because at that point in my life, I had come up with this beautiful vision of the universe that was created in a big bang. The universe was expanding, but eventually gravity would bring the whole universe back in on itself into some glorious fiery crunch, and we'd get a new rebirth of a new universe, and we'd have this lovely cyclic universe. And that really fit with my Buddhist philosophy of the time of birth, death, and rebirth. It was beautiful, and, and in that one moment, he completely shattered that view of the universe, because if... You know, I knew the universe was expanding, but he was telling me that that expansion was getting faster and faster each and every day. And if that was true, then that meant a very, very sad death for our universe. That in the future, our universe would be so large and so empty with all of the stars that currently glitter and glimmer in our cosmos burning out their last fuels. There'd be no life, no light a really empty void of a universe. That made me really depressed. So I trotted off to Oxford to do a PhD to try and answer this question, because I decided this couldn't uh, possibly uh, be right. And when I, I got there, I learned uh, a lot about, about the cosmos. 4.9% of our universe is made up of ordinary stuff. The stuff that you and I and the Earth and the Moon and the Sun, everything we can see in the universe, that accounts for just 4.9%. So 
So you might be feeling very small and insignificant in the universe, just one person on planet Earth, which is just one star in a galaxy, many, many galaxies. That may make you feel insignificant, but take it away from this point now. Actually, you are truly special because you are made up of the stuff in our universe that's really, really small and unique. But if you ask a physicist what, what they understand, electrons, protons, quarks, all of these lovely words that you know, that's just 4.9% of the universe. And the rest of our universe is dark. Uh, now, we've got 26.8% of our universe is made up of something we call dark matter. It's the strong gravitational force in our universe that glues our own Milky Way galaxy together. If you didn't have dark matter, our own Milky Way galaxy would simply fly apart. But I'm not going to talk about dark matter today. I want to focus on this stuff that we've called dark energy. 68.3% of our universe made up of something called dark energy. This is just the name that we've given to some mysterious source of energy that's making our universe expand faster and faster each and every day. This is the name that's been given to that challenge that I was set when I uh, headed off to study my PhD. Now, this is a very strange idea that something is causing our universe to get, expand faster and faster. It's like energy's coming out of nothing. So um, I compiled a list of all of the different things that it could be. And, and top on the list, to explain this very strange observation, requires us to think about the physics of nothingness, which is a bit of a strange thing to think about. Now, there are big regions of our universe where there's absolutely nothing, nothing at all. There's no particles like we're made up of. There's no dark matter. Expansive nothingness, apart from virtual particles that can simply pop in and out of existence. And in doing so, they give the universe energy. And this is not complete science fiction. Uh, this has actually been measured in a laboratory. You can create a vacuum inside a laboratory, and you can measure these virtual particles that can pop in and out of existence. It's something that comes directly from quantum theory and is well known about. And what happens in our universe, if we've got an expanding universe, we have more and more nothingness, because the universe is getting bigger and bigger. If there's more nothingness, there's more chance for these virtual particles to pop into existence, giving us energy, which causes the universe to expand even faster, and we get this wonderful perpetual motion machine. And it's a glorious theory. And could that be the answer to the challenge I was set? Unfortunately not. Because if you take the measurements that they've made in the laboratory of what happens in the, in, in the lab, or if you take the theories of particle physics, our universe shouldn't exist as it does today. If the physics of nothingness as we understand it was right, uh, our universe should have accelerated out to a gigantic scale long before the first stars and galaxies ever formed. So we can tick that one off the list, maybe. Top of the list is this idea of nothingness, the energy of a vacuum. It could just be the particle physicists got their sums wrong. It happens all the time, all the time. They can't trust the particle physicists. That's top of the list. That's what most scientists think at the moment to explain this mysterious dark side of our universe. Number two on the list, maybe there's a new weird force field in the universe. There are four fundamental forces that we know about. Gravity keeps you stuck on the ground. Electromagnetism keeps all your particles stuck together the strong and weak nuclear force, and those are forces that act on really, really small scales. Those are our four forces. Maybe there's a fifth that we don't know about. Number three, maybe Einstein's theory of gravity is wrong. So everything that I've talked about so far is all within a framework that Einstein got it right. Number four, the topic of our discussion today, the multiverse. 
And there may be the answer to this whole puzzle of why we've got this weird universe that's accelerating really rapidly. Maybe that's just because we live in a really weird universe in a sea of multiple universes. And maybe that can explain all of these weird observations. It could be that the particle physicists have got it right, this energy is just coming from the vacuum, but we just happen to be in a really weird universe where the vacuum behaves differently than we'd expect. Now, whenever you talk about the multiverse in uh, scientific circles, people start kind of like making that sort of noise, they start getting anxious, they start rubbing their hands. Now, as scientists, our job is people come up with theories. Scientists will come up with a theory. We build some equipment, some design and experiment. We go out and test the theory. And our goal is to prove the theory wrong. And that's kind of the way that science works. And the problem with this idea of the multiverse theory that a lot of scientists get really anxious about is that it's impossible to design an experiment to directly test this idea of the multiverse. Because by definition, these other universes, if they exist, are outside of our universe, and there's no way we can communicate with them if nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so some scientists will say, this is a pointless theory to even consider because I cannot test it, it is untestable, and therefore we're not even going to consider it. But what I want to share with you today is um, three different ways that we can actually test this idea of, uh, of the multiverse and we can't directly go out and observe these other universes, but we can make observations in our own universe that can tell us about what else might be out there uh, in the multiverse. So let's start off with a definition of what is our universe. Um, so if we're going to embrace Einstein's theory of general relativity, then nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And so our universe, what we can observe, is limited by how far light could have traveled since the Big Bang, which was 13.8 billion years ago. So what I'm going to describe as our universe is a sphere around us, which is the size of how long it would take light to travel 13.8 billion years. And that is going to be our definition of our universe. And I can do lots of experiments within our universe because I can make all of these um, different observations. Now, one experiment I can make is I can ask, does our universe look like it's infinite? Um, now, let's take ourselves back to the days when people weren't sure whether the Earth was flat or not. And actually, there seems to be a, a rebirth movement of the whole the Earth is flat thing. Like, all of my undergraduates at one, one week all decided that the Earth was flat, and I had to show them a load of images that it wasn't. The Earth is not flat. But imagine, imagine you were in the football stadium and you were trying to work out whether the Earth was flat. Based on your evidence within that stadium, because you can't see outside of the of the arena, you would say that the Earth was flat. Let's now um, move ourselves to the Netherlands, another very flat place. Again, as far as you look, you would say that the Earth was flat. The definition of whether something is flat is if I set off in one direction, I won't come back on myself. And of course, when people did go and navigate the Earth, they found that indeed, if they set off in one direction, eventually they would come back in on themselves. But I can make this same measurement in our universe, what I can observe in our universe. And I can say, how flat is our universe? If I set off in one direction, will I keep on going forever? 
Um, now, I've made these measurements, lots of other people have made these measurements, and I can tell you, based on how flat our own universe is, I can tell you that the rest of the universe has to be big enough to contain at least 100 other universes that are the same size of our own. Just because I know how flat our own universe is, and that tells me how flat the rest of the universe out there must be. So I know that our own universe, there has to be at least 100 other ones out there like our own. And that's our first piece of evidence, and I, and I don't think anyone can uh, object to that one, because those are really uh, detailed measurements that we've made. To get to our second piece of evidence to support the idea of there being multiple universes out there, we're going to go back to 1965, um, Bell Labs, New Jersey. They were taking all of the um, technology and innovation that had been developed uh, during the war uh, to try and understand how they could use that to communicate um, better. And it's uh, a lot of their work that led to uh, mobile phone technology that you're using today. So by night, by night, they would turn this whole equipment up so they were looking at the stars. And they made some beautiful measurements, and they found that stars did indeed emit uh, microwave wavelengths. They wrote a paper, they sent it off to the journal, and, uh, and said, we've, we've found, we've made this wonderful discovery that stars emit in, uh, in this microwave light. And the, the reviewer, the science said, whenever we write a paper, somebody always reviews our work. And they said, how can you be sure that it's coming from the stars? Um, so um, I'm sure, I hope, you've all been out on a dark night at some point and you've managed to see the Milky Way. So there's a stripe that goes across our sky where there's lots of stars, and that's just because you're looking in the rings of our own Milky Way galaxy. But there's also darker patches of skies where there's less stars. And so um, the referee of this paper said, I want you to prove to me that this is definitely microwave radiation from the stars and not just from New York. They said, all right, well, we will point this away from the Milky Way and hopefully we'll detect no radiation, and then we'll be sure that what we're measuring comes from the stars. So they did that, they turned it away, but unfortunately, they measured more of this uh, microwave radiation that appeared to be coming from nothing, because there was no stars there that they could see. They're like, oh no, where's this coming from? So they went through all sorts of different things. There's a whole long line of stories of all the different things, but my favorite, my favorite story is one Sunday afternoon, Penzias decided uh, that the uh, microwave ra radiation was coming from radioactive pigeon poo that was inside the antennae. And so he convinced Wilson to don this beautiful picture of him in these wonderful like cleaning gears, like, like some radioactive. He convinced him that they'd go inside and they had like these brooms and they were getting all the pigeon poo out, getting the pigeons out. So excited, the night came around. They were like, yes, it's going to work. No, still measured the same radiation. Uh, there's a lovely end to this story. Um, they, were, they had some friends uh, at the Advanced Institute for um, Science in Princeton that they knew when they were undergrads. And uh, they, they'd gone around to have a cup of tea with them in, in, the, in, the in the cafeteria. And they were telling this hilarious story of how Penzias had made Wilson don this gear to get rid of the pigeon poo. To cut a long story short, a theorist overheard them in the next table, and he said, hang on, what have you found? They're like, everywhere we look, there's this mi microwave radiation absolutely everywhere we look. And he said, that's exactly what my theory would predict. And they said, what, your theory? He said, yes, my, my theory of the Big Bang predicts that there should be radiation left over from the hot Big Bang everywhere you look. What, what temperature radiation did you measure? And they said, oh, it's around three. And he said, that's exactly what he predicts. And this was a chance meeting in a coffee room 
ended up with all of them winning the Nobel Prize. <laughs> How does this relate to the multiverse? Everywhere you look beyond the sky, we measure the same temperature absolutely everywhere. And what does this mean? So this is our second piece of evidence to support the multiverse. And uh, the technical term for this, if you're wanting to Google later, it's called the horizon problem. The idea is this radiation that Penzias and Wilson measured is coming from the Big Bang. It was created 13.8 billion years ago. If I look in that direction of the universe, I measure this radiation is uh, 2.74 Kelvin. That's the temperature of the light. I can look in that direction, and I measure exactly the same temperature. That light has taken 13.8 billion years to reach me. That light's also taken 13.8 billion years to reach me. We can decide at this point that we are at the epicentre of the universe, and so this all makes perfect sense. But if you want to be part of the cosmology cool gang, you have to accept the fact that you're not special, and we're not at the centre of the universe. Um, so if we accept we're not at the centre of the universe, then we start to feel a bit anxious about this result. There's no way that that part of the universe could have talked to that part of the universe. Imagine you invited a whole group of friends that didn't really know each other to a party, and you say, I would like you to come to the party at about 7 o'clock on Saturday night. And all 400 of them turn up at 7.03 and 23 seconds wearing mauve. Okay? You'd think that was slightly strange, wouldn't you? How could all of these friends who didn't know each other decide to turn up at exactly the same time wearing the same colour clothes? Are they trying to freak you out, or have they got connected? And this is the same story with the universe. That part of the universe must be talking to that part of the universe, which means they must have been connected at some point in the past. Now, there's no cosmic version of Facebook to connect all of these regions of the universe together, and so we conclude that something very strange must have happened in uh, the early universe. Or you can still hold that we're at the epicentre of the Big Bang and we're very special, but we can argue that one later. This is known as the horizon problem. It doesn't make sense how these parts of the universe could have talked to each other in the past. They must have been connected at some point. And so this led to the theory of inflation. Now, inflation is a really, really strange theory. But in a nutshell, the idea is that the universe is created in a Big Bang. It makes something about the size of a pea. And then all of the four forces that we know and love were unified, and they created enough energy to cause the universe to expand at speeds faster than the speed of light up to the scales that we see today. Take yourself back to when you were three years old and you didn't really understand about gravity. And I want you to imagine that you're sitting on top of a hill, just looking out, and you've got your truck next to you, and just having a nice time. And all of a sudden, your truck starts to go down the hill. You haven't pushed it. There are no batteries in that truck. You just sat there, and just all of a sudden, it starts rolling down. It's going to pick up speed, and it's going to get faster and faster as it goes down the hill. And to a toddler, that's amazing. I mean, wow, how did that happen? And eventually, it will stop at the bottom of the hill. Okay? And that's just gravity. That's the way gravity works. Gravity is a force that can give energy to things. And it's the same in the very, very early universe. Uh, the, all of the forces that we, that we know and love, gravity, electromagnetism, uh, the idea is that they're united. They give the universe an awful lot of energy, just like that hill gave the truck some energy. And it's that energy that expands the universe up onto these very, very large scales. Now, this theory is absolutely central to our understanding 
of the universe as a whole. And it might sound really, really weird, but it turns out that it's actually very easy, uh, theoretically and mathematically, to make this happen. What is challenging, though, however, is to stop the universe inflating. So in our, when we were thinking about our toddler sitting on the hill with the, with the truck going down, it does eventually stop just because the hill will stop at the bottom. We haven't sat our, our toddler at a very dangerous location on the top of an infinite hill. It will eventually stop. And, uh, but with these inflation theories, there are so many different theories out there, but with these inflation theories, the majority of them find it very difficult to make the universe stop inflating. Now, we know the universe is here because we're here, so something must have stopped this. Um, and the majority of theories stop this uh, by something that they call chaotic inflation. For every one universe that inflates to make it stop, the majorities of these models need to kickstart another two or more universes. And so you have, again, this other perpetual motion machine. Create one universe with an inflation, and in order to stop that period of inflation, you need to kickstart another two universes' inflation, and so on and so on. And so you end up with this bubble-like idea where you have lots and lots of different universes all undergoing different periods of inflation, and we happen to be in one of them. This is a very well-tested theory, and it's something we can observe. So we can't test the idea of the multiverse, but we can test the theory of inflation. We know that it, it must, the universe must have experienced that at some point, and so that gives us another clue to uh, support the multiverse. My final reasoning for why the multiverse is a very, um, very useful theory is the fact that you exist, uh, that we all exist. Um, so I've talked about these uh, four fundamental forces in our universe. These govern everything around us. But they are surprisingly well-tuned um, for life. So the electromagnetic force, that's what keeps electrons and protons together. If you changed the constant that decided how well they stuck together, if you changed it by just 4%, so that's a really tiny amount, the sun would explode. No sun, no life. They're just 4%. That's, that's not, we haven't got much room for wiggle room there. Strong nuclear force and the, and the weak nuclear force. If you change that just by 2%, um, the hydrogen would only last for about two minutes after the Big Bang before it got turned into helium and all sorts of other things. If you don't have lots of hydrogen created in the Big Bang, you don't create stars. If you don't create stars, you don't create life. So again, just change that number by just 2%. Uh, if you increase the mass of an electron, I think by only a few percent, DNA cannot form. If you de decrease the mass of the electron, no stars can form. This is one of the smallest ones. If you increase the mass of a proton by just 0.2%, just 0.2%, atoms cannot form. So this is known um, as a fine-tuning problem in physics. And, and scientists, we don't like fine-tuning problems. We don't like the fact that, that we don't understand how constants are tuned. And going back to what I was saying at the start, that challenge that the professor set me to try and understand why the expansion of our universe was accelerating, here's another constant. Maybe that idea of the physics of nothingness is right, but we just happen to be in a universe that is well-tuned, so the vacuum energy is just right that galaxies and atoms can form. And so the fact that we're here 
suggests we're in a very special universe, a very special universe where everything seems to be just right for stars and planets and life to form. And that would make sense. If there were multiple universes out there with lots of different realizations of physics, naturally, we would be in the one that was perfectly uh, tuned for life. So the multiverse solves that, uh, that problem. So I've talked about there being other universes out there, uh, that those other universes probably are, are not well-tuned to life, that we happen to be in a, in a really nice universe. Um, but there is an extension to this idea of the multiverse, and that's the idea of the other world. So I'm sure you all know the idea of Schrodinger's cat. It's in a box. Is it alive? Is it dead? Uh, and the idea of quantum physics is there's no black and white. There's no right or wrong. There's a whole range of different probabilities of different outcomes. And all of these different realities are possible. Uh, it's just as likely that the cat is alive as dead. And, but the action of looking defines which reality uh, that you are in. Now, the extension of this multiverse idea to this other world theory is that every time we make an action, that, uh, that defines the reality that we're in. But the other action could just as likely happen and that the universe splits in that sense. Uh, so uh, for all of the uh, gentlemen without beards, maybe that was a decision you took, but maybe in another reality you have very fine goatees. Who knows? But it's, it's an interesting extension of this idea of the multiverse theory. It's, again, another thing that scientists get really anxious about. Um, and we have, you know, is, is this just going too far? Is this mathematics uh, really pushing us into some fantasy that it's no real guide of reality? And, and to that, I'd say the same sort of answer that I've been talking about with the multiverse. No, we cannot test this, this theory directly. We cannot test if every time we make a decision, uh, you've made an alternative decision somewhere else. No, we can't test that directly. But we can test quantum theory. And quantum theory suggests that this should naturally happen. And uh, maybe there's a nice connection between all these ideas of the multiverse and these other world um, scenarios. That was Catherine Haymans in the IAI's Philosophy for Our Times podcast. If your brain can take more cutting-edge science and philosophy, subscribe. There's also loads more great content at iai.tv.